0: In today's interview, we have Dr. Marie Maservi, who is a neuroradiologist, psychologist, and historical martial artist, sword mum to the Noble Science Academy, and the organizer of Fraufecht, which is the only American women's event west of New York. And we talk about all sorts of things, most particularly including sort of psychological preparation, uh hits to the head, things like that. Before we get on with that, let me tell you about some cool stuff on sword people. Most critically, most importantly, and newest, I have created a new service for Sword People. So you can now have your own private club forum. So if you have a historical fencing club and you'd like to be able to interact with your fellow members and you know organize club events and just generally talk to each other, um, but sort of in private, then just message me on the platform with the name that you want. In other words, the name of your club. I'll set it up, make you the host, So you can upload your club's logo and customize it as you like. And then, of course, you can let your people know and start using it. This is entirely free. And it's, I think, the next stage of Sword People development. In other news on Sword People, we have a detailed review of the Gabriel 2.0 gauntlets, another on training heads for pole arms, which developed into a discussion about what sort of uh, rubber pole arm heads you should put on the ends of long sticks. And also a discussion about historical training equipment so how do we know what was used for practice back in the day but if i have to pick one thing from sword people in the last couple of weeks it would be this oh when your dagger strikes turned right back in your eye that's fiore Yes, there is a silly song about Fiore that the excellent Paul Wagner, who has been on this show before, um, has recorded and put online. And of course, I shared it to Sword People because it's just the kind of thing us Sword People like. So if you'd like to join us, just go to swordpeople.com and request to join. I will see you there. Now, what I've been working on in the last couple of weeks, firstly, uh, I posted a blog post on Monday around mental health, which is actually the mental health chapter of my book currently called The Windsor Method, and which will be rebranded shortly to be called The Principles and Practices of Solo Training. But it's there on the blog at guywindsor.net, including the audio from the audiobook, which I have completed and edited and everything. And we're just waiting for the cover to be ready, and then I can... Then I can release that into the wild. So if you'd like to uh, read or listen to my views on how to look after your mental health, then that's the place to go. On the subject of books, The Duelist Companion 2, so the second edition, the ebook is ready and the print proofs for the hardback have been ordered. When they have arrived, we'll go through them in detail, make sure there are no further mistakes to correct, and then we get the files back with any corrections if there are any um, then we'll be able to produce the hardback and the paperback and the ebook. Um, I won't be releasing the ebook until everything else is also ready except of course if you have pre-ordered the full colour hardback from swordschool.shop then I have sent you an email with a link so that you can get the ebook Um, and anyone who buys the pre-order or Anyone who pre-orders the full colour hardback will automatically get the ebook immediately, or at least they should, if the automations have been set up correctly. But I did them myself, so there's no guarantee. I should probably get Katie to check them. Um, so, yeah. So if you, the fastest way to get the ebook is, of course, to order the full colour hardback. Um, but I understand that's that's quite a pricey proposition. So if you wait just a few more weeks, the ebook should be ready, along with the um, option to order the. Black and white paperback or the full color hardback. Now, while we're talking about rapier, let me remind you about the Get Ready for Rapier seven very short videos, about five minutes each, covering ankle range of motion, knees, hips, hamstrings, shoulders, neck, and wrists, with bonus videos which have been shot and edited. Bonus videos are short warm up. So there's a 10 minute warm up, a 20 minute warm up, and a 15 minute cool down. Um, So you can sign up for those videos at guywindsor.net forward slash g-r-r. Okay, grr. I've also been working on the Abrazzare material from Fiore. I have translated all the plays, assembled, and I'm currently assembling the video plan to send to Jessica Finley because I'm flying to the US in beginning of July so that Jessica and I can shoot the course material. It's all very exciting, but of course it's It's quite a big investment, so it needs to be very carefully prepared to make sure we don't screw it up on the day. Now, Jessica wouldn't screw it up, but I very well might. While I'm over in the States, I will be wiggling up to Madison for a seminar on July 15th and 16th. It's called Meyer versus the Italians, a weekend with Guy Windsor and Chris Vaslanbrook. And it's our plan to compare and contrast Meyer's rapier with Capifero's rapier and Meyer's longsword with Fiore's longsword. And in general, we're going to have a jolly good time. So do join us if you can, Uh, I've set up a redirect so that you can go to guywindsor.net forward slash Madison, as in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and that will direct you to the uh, seminar page where you can sign up and uh, book your place. Spots are limited, so if you're thinking about it, um, I would suggest sign up because otherwise all the spots will go and we'll have to say, sorry, no, you can't come. So... Without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. Marie Maservi, who is a neuroradiologist, a psychologist, and a historical martial artist, sword mum to the Noble Science Academy, and the organizer of Fraufecht, which is the only win- American women's event west of New York. So without further ado, Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So whereabouts in the world are you?
1: I'm in Reno, Nevada, and that's Northern Nevada near the California border and about 30 minutes from Lake
0: Tahoe. Okay. So not Las Vegas at all, which is the only bit of Nevada most people have ever heard of.
1: Right. It's, um, (laughs) geographically, we're closer to Northern California. I'm two hours from Sacramento, about three and a half hours from San Francisco. We are about seven hours from Vegas. If you're driving fast, um, okay. so it's so far away that we actually have a separate branch of the noble science Academy down there, um, who we collaborate with and mentor remotely, but we don't see them all that often because it would take <laughs> the whole weekend just to drive back and forth.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, seven hours is quite a long way, even by American standards. Yeah. Um, where are you? Nobody ever asks you. Oh, I am in Ipswich in the UK, which is about 70 miles northeast of London. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's about 15 minutes from the coast and nice, fairly small town. Um, so yes, you're right. Nice. No, no one, So when you say no one ever asks me that, uh, do you actually listen to the show?
1: I've listened to a few. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: Good. Excellent. Glad to hear it. It's ni- nice, nice to know that some people are actually listening. It's hard to tell oh. sometimes.
1: <laughs> I think you have a, a much larger audience than you think, I'm sure. Well, it's difficult to track it.
0: Because Ah. the, I mean, officially, we recently passed 100,000 downloads. So that's something, I suppose. Um, That is something. And we have, at that point, we have 153 episodes out. So it's not actually that many downloads per episode.
1: And And then you get like some idiots like me that download it three times before they finally get it working, right? Well,
0: there's obviously some of that goes on, but also not every <laughs> listen is recorded. So, for example, if it's streamed on uh, Spotify, for example, I don't think that counts as a download. So okay, yeah. there's no really good way to measure it other than like if I ask people to go and do something like, I don't know, email me about the transcripts, for instance, then you know how many people actually do that? And mm. it's so it's, it's a very it's very difficult to really assess how much impact we're really having but it is nice that these days when I approach people to come on the show they've usually heard of it
1: yeah and if they're in the
0: sword world obviously that's
1: <laughs> right, right right yeah it's
0: um, always good yeah so uh, how did you get started with historical martial arts
1: oh it's a funny question I it's such an integral part of my life now it's almost strange to think of life before HEMA and uh, mm. the cool answer would be that I've always liked swords The truthful answer is that I have a lot of hobbies, but I really wouldn't have picked sword fighting out of a hat. Okay. (laughs) Um, However, my husband chose HEMA. Okay. And I chose to support my husband. Okay. Um, We've been married almost 14 years, and in our early marriage, life kind of had to revolve around me. Because I knew that I wanted to be a doctor. Right. And in the U.S., that required 15 years of schooling and training (laughs) after
0: high school. Okay. Yeah, that's quite a lot. So,
1: right? So here I was dragging him all over the continent as I was accumulating degrees. So we've lived in Montreal, Nevada, New Hampshire, Arizona, and now we're back in Nevada again. And turns out all of this moving around was pretty disruptive to him trying to climb any kind of ladder. Sure. Um, he has been really supportive of my career. And so it was really important to me to provide him with that complete support also.
0: Um,
1: but as it turns out, we've lived in a series of very small to mid-sized towns and almost always had to start new clubs from scratch whenever we moved. So there was a lot of sacrifice. Like in the beginning, it was, um, us living on a pretty tight budget, so that we could save up any extra, you know, and and buy wasters. Or um, I would just show up to practices, and sometimes it would just be him and me and one or two other people. Um, and then it was sending him off to the UK to get his master's degree in medieval history. Okay. Um, and even nowadays, it's like I hold down the fort and solo parent most of our evenings while he goes off to teach or he'll go away for a weekend to um, coach his students in tournaments and I'll hold down the fort at home. So, you know, we can say from experience that it's not glamorous being
0: married to a medical student and it's not glamorous being married to a heal instructor. Well, yeah, my right? wife would definitely agree with that. Latter, latter part of that. Yes. Yeah, I, I was yeah. a professional historical martial arts instructor before we even met. And so it wasn't okay. ever going to change. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of like evenings and weekends. Um, but mm-hmm. that did mean that, you know, when our kids were little, I was home for most of the day with the kids doing various things. Oh, and yep,
1: that's that's actually yeah. true.
0: So, you know, getting the kids off to school so. every morning and all that kind of stuff, that was tended to be me. Um, ah. So, yeah, it's it's it, it has its, you, know, you
1: It's interesting because, like, yeah, one of you works a swing shift, and so you basically kind of, like, <laughs> pass, like, ships in the night, right? And you kind of, you solo parent in your own time, and then it's very rare that you're actually all home uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't that bad because
0: I didn't teach every night. Um, and I didn't teach every weekend. Uh, okay. Um, cause by the time that we'd met, I yeah. was kind of sufficiently established that I didn't have to be working all uh, the time. But at one point, when my eldest child was about two, um, I just casually mentioned that I hadn't actually taken a holiday since I started the school seven years earlier. Oh, well, no, nine, nine years uh-huh. ago. And my, wow. this, the guy who was, who was the sort of president of the association of my students at that time, uh, he said, guy, your, your poor family. This is not acceptable. Come into the office. So I went went into my office at the Sao, where there was a big wall calendar. And he said, he handed me a Sharpie and said, pick three weeks. Nice. And so I just went, okay. The, the, the July, August, so, boom. He said, you do not come to the south I was like, okay. Because in Finland, they understand family time and they understand holiday time.
1: You know, honestly... What you've described kind of strikes me as like, if that ever happens to us, then we've made it (laughs) as HEMA instructors because we haven't reached that point yet. We just opened our most recent Mm -hmm. school in 2020. Great timing, great timing. um, (laughs) Oh yeah, we had a we had a grand opening and then a week later we had a grand closing (laughs) because the entire city was shut down and then we sort of like hobbled along the next year until we were able to year or two until like we really you know fully opened and um and right now like my husband just took a one week off last week and it was the first time in a really really long time we do yeah i mean like, right now, I'm like, I'm a doctor, but you're the limiting factor in whether we can go on
0: vacation. <laughs> so, um, you're a... Okay, there's there lots of things I want to unpack there. Um, but firstly, just because I'm curious, what is a neuroradiologist? Mm-hmm. Do you study, like, x-rays of the brain? Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Yes. Or CT scans or
1: Yeah, anytime you get a medical imaging done, um, you your file passes through the desk of a radiologist. I know on drama TV shows, they skip that part and every doctor just has a radiologist built into their brain. That is not true. It's another doctor looking at all of the, all of the imaging and providing an interpretation. And then the, um, the doctor that is facing you kind of synthesizes that information and makes a treatment plan and goes from there. So a neuroradiologist is brain spines, head and neck, um, anything adjacent to the brain and spine. Okay, so
0: basically. would you be a good person to talk to about concussion preventive strategies for historical martial arts?
1: Um, prevention, less so than like diagnosis. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like I'm the I'm behind the scenes on the back end, mm-hmm. right? Like I see your head CT once you have suffered a fracture okay. or a bleed or, or something that is detectable. Um, but I will tell you that in our school and in tournaments we run, we are very, um, we're very adverse to um, causing sure. injury. And so we're
0: much more productive than, than other, others may be inclined to be. Yeah, there's, there's a certain... Okay, it doesn't make sense to me that most people are using for their primary head protection a modified sport fencing mask that is fundamentally structurally designed... Mm. To handle foils, epes, and sport fencing savers. it's like right. it makes sense. it would make okay. a lot more sense to me if we started out with something like a medieval helmet, and and sort of engineered from mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, yes. And, you know, yes.
1: But also, even before we get to protective equipment, how about we yeah. make oh, our yes. own <laughs> and <laughs> our-, our training culture?
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. I think. When it comes to the concussion thing, just simply not belting each other in the head as hard as we can is yeah. You know, it's a good starting point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of poise to you know have the power to mm-hmm. be able to kill someone with a blow, but then like not apply it because right. we're not here to fight to the death. We have careers and families to get back to.
0: But also, even if you were there to fight to the death, you don't want to overcommit to a blow because if you miss, then you are overexposed and your yes. chances of recovering in time is minimal so also true yeah. yeah so yeah i think especially serious martial artists need to kind of cultivate that control
1: yeah
0: um okay so getting back to neuroradiology for a second
1: mm-hmm.
0: um this is not something that was on the list of questions i sent so sure it's right. a little bit out of the left field um okay reading a scan of a brain mm-hmm is all about spotting patterns and structures and things not being where they're supposed to be. And
1: Yes, I'm like that, right? a glorified art
0: critic. Right, okay. <laughs> so is it not the case that an AI could be trained to do it faster and more reliably?
1: Um, that's interesting that you asked that. We have been looking into it. We're very, very um, interested in AI. Sure. Um if not taking over, at least like making our jobs a little easier. Right. Um, and so far, um, AI is not, not there for interpretation of medical imaging. And I honestly think that everybody thinks that imaging is the low-hanging fruit because you have like all the data fed yeah. in to the machine. It's actually not the lowest hanging fruit. I would think that um, a primary care physician, or in or a nurse, um, mm-hmm. would be replaced much easier because you can have a kiosk talking to a patient, and they can input their symptoms and and right. um and then the basic feed, it, feed into an algorithm, right? Like that's the low hanging fruit. Image interpretation. I don't know for some reason, because you have to be able to take the 2D image and construct it in your head and make a 3D picture. Somehow, at least the things that we've had so far um, hasn't hasn't even begun to approach. Like there was a guy who said, you know, I will come and personally wash your car if you can create an algorithm that can recognize the human adrenal glands. And this was, like, back in the 70s, right? And wow. <laughs> still hasn't washed any cars, right? It's something so simple. Um, there's there's just a lot more to it than, um, than we give it credit for. So. Sure.
0: And, and again, I'm, I'm, my intention is not to, like, disrespect your professional oh, expertise no, 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 or anything no. like that. But it just it strikes me because you have a finite data set of, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, you know, all brains are supposed to have the same sort of structures inside them and, you um, it's, I'm guessing it's probably easier to see something that's, that's, that doesn't have any anomalies than maybe <sighs> it, it strikes me that like they did this in Chicago with yeah. um, heart attacks where they uh-huh. had a simple like four or five question thing, uh-huh. which the answers got fed into a simple algorithm and it, it determined whether the patient should be sent home or, or admitted to the hospital.
1: Yeah, something basic uh, and algorithmic yeah. like that. That sounds
0: beautiful. And yeah, and that that works a lot better than actual doctors. The because-
1: problem is with medical imaging, um, there is not a, like, it's not binary whether this is normal versus not normal, right? Uh, okay. Normal has such a huge range and variety because every person is built slightly different. We have to understand what is the range of normal and... um so it's not actually a finite data set. Right. And then also the clinical context matters to our interpretation of the image. We're not just in a black box, um, just going normal, abnormal, normal, abnormal all day long. Okay. Right? We have to take into context, um, you know, certain things may appear the same on imaging, but the diagnosis depends on everything else that we don't see in front of our screen. So a lot of times that includes calling a colleague who is looking at the patient and mm-hmm. kind of having a chat about, okay, so what's really most likely based on the clinical scenario and all that. You kind of have to be the total package.
0: Okay, interesting. Because it's, it's an area of medicine that I've never really even thought about. Mm-hmm. Because in in the on TV, it's just they they, they slap an X-ray up on a screen, or you see it on the and screen. It's like on the, the screen this...
1: they've got it upside down. I have to say, <laughs>
0: <of the> <laughs> yes, yes, probably. But it's always super obvious what they're looking yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's
1: it's not. Um, they no, make it sound like it's obvious, and it you know yeah. So they should make a medical drama about a radiologist. It would be super exciting.
0: <laughs> it probably wouldn't actually. <laughs> no. That's maybe why they don't like I guess all, all all the fun is happening on the inside, right? Okay, so why did you pick that particular branch of medicine?
1: Many reasons. Um, I actually really like physics, and okay. um, and I liked the kind of reasoning that goes on in radiology. Like you're using um, pictures and what you kind of can infer from a series of shadows to put into a clinical context and make a diagnosis to help a patient. And um, I, found, I found that part really just like intellectually stimulating. And I also, um, I realized later, later on in my medical training that doctors rely on imaging a lot. And so without radiology functioning, most other doctors cannot be what they are. And oh, so do it's, what it's, they
0: do it's a linchpin job. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, okay, so you're in, in medicine. This is the area you've gone into. What area of swords have you gone into? What area of swords? Yeah, I mean, what 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 kind of swordsmanship do you do?
1: Oh, okay. So I um, I started with longsword back mm. in um, 2013, and I. I kind of, I did that for a while, and then um, my HEMA career was actually cut short because I um, took on too much head trauma, <laughs> actually. Really? Um, it's interesting because, like, it's this thing that, like, I think nobody really knows about unless um, unless your, your career kind of depends on, on your vision. But I am prone to retinal detachments because right. I have a high um i'm highly nearsighted and um it takes a very small force for me to um to actually detach my retina and in one of my routine eye exams my optometrist saw some scarring in my retina and he said oh, God. he said um have you been like have you had any symptoms where you just like couldn't see out of a part of your eye or anything like that? I'm like, no. Um, I think you'd go yeah, to the doctor straight away, wouldn't you? He said this is pretty kind of maybe far peripheral in your um, in your retina. Maybe you didn't notice, but um, I had to have a laser treatment to get it reattached. And it had already been some, some time because um, it had been scarred. And I said, okay, wait, I'm a radiologist. I need to be able to see... What can I do in the future to, to prevent this from happening? And he was like, "And eh, nothing really, except that you just can't get hit in the head. Okay. So I said, okay, my HEMA career has just come to an abrupt end.
0: <laughs> Fair. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I mean, you, you could do small sword. Can you guarantee speak-
1: not getting hit?
0: <laughs> no, you can't guarantee it, but you can't guarantee not hitting your head, you know, getting out of bed in the morning. Um, but in small sword, you can, the, the face is not usually a target and you can, you can reasonably specify no head hits when you're facing okay. someone, but most critically you can fence with a much lighter, much more flexible blade. Yeah. Um, and a lot of training small swords are quite close to real small swords and the blade is a lot more rigid than than a modern foil, for example, but you can absolutely do, and small sword training with foils, because that's what they used in the 18th century. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, if you get hit in the face with a foil, or well, you're wearing a mask, you get hit in the face with a foil, the chances of it, you know, it's a much, much lower level of impact oh, okay. than yeah. you would be getting with a well, long sword. Well, our
1: school has recently started a small sword program, so maybe maybe I will. Okay.
0: But but insist that your opponent has a foil. Yeah, Okay. Right, And check it for bendiness before you fence because okay. you want maximum bendiness in your opponent's foil to save your head and specify no head hits. Okay. Right, I mean, it, I love Smallsword. It is absolutely brutal, nasty, vicious. It's the kind of thing that, that makes you want to betray your friends and drink too much, right? <laughs> it, it is an evil, evil weapon when you do it right. Well, you know, I made tennis that
1: when I played tennis, so it's (laughs) a equal contact sport.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why do you think sports psychology, I mean, I'm not saying I disagree with you, but why do you particularly think sports psychology is important in historical martial arts?
1: I think that psychology is helpful in most things in life. I use it every single day in seemingly unrelated endeavors. Some people in the U.S. argue, oh, like parenting or... (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, 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 definitely. (laughs) Um, Like people in the U.S. will argue that doctors don't or shouldn't have to have an undergraduate degree before medical school. But I would argue that everyone should be required to have a psychology degree, whether they're doctors or not, because understanding how the human mind works should be requisite to being human. A brain is a really powerful piece of equipment. So why should we just blunder about through life, operating it without any instructions?
0: (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Um, So I guess the the issue would be that psychology is an enormous field. And it's one where it kind of, there's really hard science psychology at one end where it basically blends into neurology. Mm Mm-hmm. But most psychological experiments are very difficult to make definitive, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right? It's very difficult to collect data in a reliable way. It's a lot of
1: subjective measurements and there's a lot of variables.
0: Um, So, so what aspect of psychology do you think this compulsory undergraduate degree in it should? Well, I don't
1: even think you need to have a whole degree, right? I'm just being facetious, but I I think that, um, (laughs) I, I think that you can probably break down like, um, human motivation, um, group relations and interpersonal relations into like probably two or three courses, just even understanding, um, that we have cognitive biases. a a lot of people are not aware right um like
0: definitely a module on cognitive biases they are so useful to know about Mm -hmm.
1: or um just like even limits of perception and cognition Mm -hmm. people are not aware that that your your brain is not just taking like subjective input from your eyes and and just constructing you know what is reality like there's usually multiple realities based on you know where you were standing at the time and you know how the conversation unfolded or whatever right but as as it pertains to sports um you know i've been interested in sports and performance psychology for decades um i'm a musician myself and i spent my high school years wondering why in the world i could never perform my solos as well as i practice them
0: what, and, what do you play
1: um i play violin and i'm okay. also a singer and um and then also like in the process of training to be a doctor, I took literally hundreds of exams. And I always wondered why I couldn't score as high on the exams as I did on the practice exam, right? right. And it It always—it's always—I have to build in like a buffer. Like if I wanted to score eighty percent, I needed to make sure my baseline was ninety percent or higher, and I just expected that my performance was going to drop on the big day, Hmm. and I would just chalk it up to external factors like not sleeping well or being distracted by noise in the exam room or the temperature was too cold. So I just routinely gave away ten to fifteen percent of my performance. Um, to factors outside of my control and it wasn't until much later that I realized I could actually control a lot more than I thought and I could regain those performance points and really do justice to myself and my level of
0: preparation so what did you do that was different
1: it mostly comes down to um, anticipating the exam conditions and just factoring that in because the reason we don't perform as well when it's the real deal is because we're surprised by how different things are, right? So when you travel to a HEMA tournament, you're in a new city, you didn't sleep well in the hotel room, you um, didn't get to eat your favorite breakfast or whatever, and, and you're probably putting a bunch of external pressure on yourself going, okay, this is it, this is it, this is it. And what you need to do instead is simulate as much as you can what it's actually going to look like on performance day and then just tell yourself, this is like I practiced. I got to do what I practiced.
0: Right. Yeah. And it reminds me, um, the British cycling team, which became amazingly good a while ago. One of the things they do is like they, they, when the team travels, it has a van with mattresses and pillows in so oh, that every athlete is sleeping on this. Yeah. Anything um, that can be made consistent is made mm-hmm. consistent. Yeah. Um, and then they're, they're maximizing the sort of marginal gains that you can get from those little tiny tweaks, which add up to quite yeah. a lot of I mean, it really, because like
1: you just, you spend a lot of your mental energy thinking about little things that, That you don't have control of that day. And I don't mean by this that you should always train at maximum intensity as if you were in a tournament to the fight, like, you know, to the life or death. Um, I just mean that, you know, you, I mean, obviously, like a a marathon runner is never going to run multiple marathons preparing for a marathon, right? They're gonna, but they're gonna simulate parts of it and kind of build up their endurance so that they can perform at peak when it matters. And I think that's what um, that's what I mean when it comes to controlling your
0: mind. And also being making themselves familiar with the course. Yeah. So it's less right It's like when whenever you travel to a new place, whenever I go somewhere I've never been before, it's very stimulating, it's very enjoyable, but mm-hmm. it's much more tiring than going somewhere I've been before. Yeah. Because yeah. everything is new. So I guess yeah. there's a that's another But also there's simply the ability to handle the extra pressure. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think that like, um, you know, visualization is a tool that is used a lot in sports training. Um, But I think that people don't utilize it to the fullest extent when they're visualizing a perfect day. Like I showed up and I just... I got, every, I got every hit on my opponent and every call was, was made in my favor. Well, that's cool, but what are you going to do when that starts to not happen right. and you derail, right? Because what you need to do is envision everything that can go wrong and envision yourself right. responding beautifully to that going wrong.
0: This reminds me of a, a podcast I listened to where there was a world-class weightlifter who was saying that one of the things that made the difference for her is um, she she visualized and trains what happens when the judge says that wasn't a you – know, she did some technical error in the lift where maybe maybe her hips are supposed to go below her knees and the judge says they didn't even though she knows they did or whatever. So she rehearses that in her head so that when that happens or if that happens, it doesn't derail her. It's just yes. – this is just like practice.
1: There's always so much more left of the game that if you um – um kind of have a melt meltdown in the beginning you're losing the ability to to recover and and do so much better and still do the best you can given the circumstances
0: yeah. so, do you have any particular practices that you do based on your study of psychology
1: um so we mentioned visualization that's a big part of it and i think mm-hmm. um in my mind i have i have made um kind of Well, I kind of allow myself to have the appropriate, um, like, my natural response to a situation, but I make it fit the time at hand. So if I only have 10 minutes to have a meltdown, I try to give myself the space. Like, okay, then I'll set the timer for 10 minutes. I got to be composed in 10 minutes from now and and keep going. But in this time, I'm going to let myself just have it out so that... um, so that I can go through the process of, you know, reacting to whatever just happened, but not letting it take all day and derail whatever else I have planned for the day. Um, and okay, so how, how do
0: you, once, once you allow the meltdown to occur, how do you stop it?
1: You got to do, do you- it in a controlled fashion. Um,
0: it's <laughs> kind of counterintuitive, yes. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown, but in a controlled fashion.
1: Yeah, because you've got to make it productive. You have to go through the emotions, yeah. but you have to have a way of reining yourself back in so that you're composed for the next thing, right? Because mm-hmm. um, you don't have all day. So basketball players will do something really simple. Um, they'll just dribble the ball a couple times before they take that penalty shot, it's not because the dribbling matters, right? But it's, yeah. a, it's a centering practice that kind of refocuses their mind. They've trained it that way. Um, you know, I used to be a basketball player. You always do the two dribbles before you do the penalty shot. So you put your mind, you trigger that, that response of like, okay, now I'm going to do the next thing. And yeah. um, because you kind of uh, ramp
0: up to it, like at a, yeah. at a predictable... Exactly into what you're about to do. Because it's
1: yeah. all about um, making your performance match what you practiced, right? And right. so if you've got a little tiny routine in your head and in your body that you that you go through, you go through these motions and then your body's ready for the next motion. And in hema it can be really short, it may have to be really short. and um, I like to have the mantra of next exchange. I'm ready for the next exchange, as opposed I, 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 to reanalyzing I, I, what happened in the past.
0: I'm going to tell you mine. Okay. Right. Okay. Annie Lennox did a solo album a long time ago, and there's a song on it called "No More I Love You," which, for some reason, a long time ago, um, I had it on in the sal, and I started doing a uh, long short syllabus form to that song. But like completely camped up, like you know, su- you know, swaying my hips and just doing the whole thing, and it just it made it made the students just just laugh themselves till they practically wet themselves, right? Yeah. And it begins with doo 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 doo, right? And it's just like this the silliest little noise. Uh, but that it takes me from whatever I'm in at the moment, do doo 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 doo. I get this kind of silly fun. Happy, it's like a palate kind of,
1: cleanser, right? Exactly. It
0: exactly. Clears and your th-
1: mind and gets you back to yeah. the next thing.
0: I, I freaked my flying instructor out doing it. Like as I was coming into land with a crosswind, <laughs> and I was feeling a, I was feeling a little bit tense and like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. gonna yeah. crash the plane, gonna crash the plane. Like, doo 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 doo, and he was like, what the fuck?
1: It's <laughs> but, you know, I calmed down like because your your mind has these like rudimentary <laughs> primitive circuits that you can access through like either smells or auditory stimuli or whatever that can trigger a different mindset way faster than you can reason yourself into it through your higher functioning like cerebral cortex
0: right exactly it's it's having a shortcut to a state of mind Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah okay powerful And and incidentally, for anyone listening, there are no circumstances in which I shall video what we call the Annie Lennox form and put it on the internet. That is not going to happen because (laughs) it would trash my reputation as an instructor for all time. So no. You shouldn't have brought it up. But (laughs) I'm quite happy for people to imagine it, but there's no way I'm putting it on the internet because, you know, (laughs) it wouldn't wouldn't do my reputation any good. Yeah, Um, that's funny. You've had a lot of experience helping to set up clubs.
1: Yeah. As, as you
0: move around. Mm-hmm. Um, presumably, when you start to set up a club, you have some idea of the direction in which you want it to grow, right? So, what do you do at the early stages that helps you keep that direction or create the direction that you want?
1: Honestly, I don't know that... Would most people who start clubs from scratch say that they have like a grand vision from the very beginning. Because in the beginning, you're just hoping that more than two people will show up, right? In the beginning, it's just like me and my husband sure. in, a co- in a park.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean like some grand plan for taking over the historical martial arts world. <laughs> what I mean is like some idea of the kind of club you're trying to create.
1: Yeah. Are you
0: trying to create, I don't know, something that feels like a medieval guild? Or are you trying to create something... That feels like a sports club, or are you trying to create something that feels like um, some colleagues that have got together to to discuss and play with the things they're interested in? Or is it going to be more hierarchical? Do you want a teacher who mm. is supposedly knows what they're doing and students? So there's more of a formal teacher-student relationship. I mean, there's there's lots of options that you could be going for. I and see. I'm I basically I'm I'm trying to dig into the question. Um, of, you know, you're a psychologist, and yeah. So presumably you have some like uh, idea of how people work. And so what are you what and I'm basically I'm trying to pull out of your head the stuff that I think is going to be most useful to people who are currently thinking about starting a club, have started the club, have are running a club and maybe things aren't going quite the way they wish they were going. Mm,
1: that's good. Okay. I mean? Yeah. So the way we have done it, maybe not the way that I would like engineer how to do it. Um, okay. So like I said, when we first start out, like just he and I go out to a park and we start swinging swords and we're having a lot of fun. People walk by and mm-hmm. and they'll maybe ask us, what are you doing? Or yeah. if we're very lucky, someone will come up and say, hey, are you doing HEMA? And we'll be like, yes, you've heard we, of HEMA. We've had the <laughs>
0: We've had the occasion of um, people calling the cops, and we've done that before. Oh, like, that's like never cops showing yet. up, yeah, cops <laughs> showing up with submachine guns. Going. Oh gosh! Oh, okay. Um, so not actually people with swords trying to kill each other. Actually, it's a historical fencing group. Oh, great! This is in Edinburgh in the nineties, so you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> they should We're know because we've got
1: protective yet. gear on. We're not playing with sharps. Like this is totally it's,
0: different, right? The problem wasn't the police. The problem was the. Was the, the people misinterpreting? People walking by, and yeah. getting a bit confused.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but um, so in the beginning, it's just like having a strong, like intro lesson that you can give to somebody to kind of mm-hmm. interest them in what you're doing, and you know, put the sword in their hand as much as yeah. possible, and don't just like lecture on like history or or treatises yeah. or whatever, right? Like give them something practical here's a sword, here's how to yeah. use it, now go whack each other for a bit. Um, so I find that the the earlier you can get people actively doing it, the better success rate you have of of converting them. And, you know, we've actually, in our clubs, we have had close to like 50% women a lot of times, or at wow. least like 30%. And I think part of it is that... When we're starting there's out when' it's, there. there's a woman there <laughs> Wow, i, who is I I'm fifty percent if we're just starting out um, you're, you're not
0: you're not suggesting that representation matters are you
1: a little bit <laughs> 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 um I think that like having the women there helps both women and men be more interested in joining honestly sure um, oh, for sure and um and so I think that just if you have a bunch of people and they're having fun and They're learning and they're using what they learn. I think that's a good start. And then obviously, like over the years, as we've grown, now our our Reno um, school has like 50 people and um, we've clearly had to refine a lot. And I mean... This is like this is the stuff that my husband and I stay up late talking about every night. Is like our school, the future of HEMA, how we can tweak our curriculum or pedagogy or the culture to help mm-hmm. our students. Like I've become really fond of the members of our sword family, who are you know turned out to be our primary group of friends now, um, and I'm heavily invested in their lives and I care a great deal about their progression as fencers and as individuals. And so everything that we do as a school it's kind of centered around empowering our fencers. We build our whole culture around giving fencers everything they need to succeed and find joy in their practice of HEMA. Okay. Um,
0: what are those things?
1: So uh, we've determined that this is most effectively done with a pr- two-pronged approach. Number okay. one, the system should be set up to focus on outcomes. And number two, the fencers should be trained with a focus on process. So I will elaborate on that.
0: Yes, please do. I, I, I know exactly where you're going, and okay. it's, it is music to my heart, oh, but I, love I, it. I, I, I don't want to interfere with your, your exposition. So yeah, go ahead.
1: Okay. So starting with the outcomes-based um, system, you have to have a good curriculum, you have scholarly projects and mentorship in place so that there is a progression With um, Starting with good passive learning, and then you are expected to engage in interpretation or curriculum development, and then you get to be responsible for training someone else who is less experienced than yourself, because teaching is ultimately the most effective learning tool. All right, so my husband, Michael Forrest, is a historian and a linguist, so he reads manuals in their original language, and he bypasses some of the inadequacies of the available English translations. Now, yeah. I recognize that um, this part is not necessarily easy to replicate in any given school, um, so we're just kind of fortunate. But when we have the material in place, we try to make our classes brain-friendly so that we can maximize efficiency of learning so that, um, you know, however many hours someone may have to devote to HEMA, those hours can be well spent. And then um, we have personal trainers, tailoring exercises to individual body mechanics. And then the whole school has a feedback mechanism where we monitor our outcomes and adjust the process for better outcomes, right? We have a leadership team that um, meets regularly and discusses what's going on and what is going poorly and how to make things better, right? So the team is comprised of instructors and senior students, but also less advanced students who just happen to care a lot. And um, we even have one who um, hasn't even practiced HEMA for a while, but just kind of feels like she belongs, right? So the input should come from multiple viewpoints, and the solutions are not just top-down,
0: Right. So when you say feedback mechanisms, you mean basically this leadership group, um, the members actually expressing their opinions about what they've seen and what they think could be done better.
1: Yeah. I mean, ideally, everyone should feel comfortable enough with a head instructor that they can come to the instructor and say, this is not going well for me. But if not, there should be a lot of other ears in the club.
0: Right. Yeah. And because I know from experience that many of my students in the past have felt like a bit that they don't really want to like say it directly to guy but Mm. i have you know my senior students sort of milling about and whatever and actually one one function of school parties everyone has a few drinks or whatever and actually some of the most interesting feedback has come from when someone has got a bit of dutch courage in them and has a quiet word with one of the senior students who Mm -hmm. then passes it on to me yeah and it's all very kind of low impact if you know what i mean
1: and it's important as, as the yeah. head instructor to take that yeah, and not um,
0: not it's be like, "Oh,
1: you have challenged my ego, and now I cannot." Right. You know, because and it doesn't and it doesn't
0: make you a bad person if your school isn't perfect.
1: No school is perfect.
0: <laughs> exactly. No school exactly. is
1: perfect, and so, like, what are you asking if you if you can't take like? Um, we find this in medicine actually a lot. Um, oh sure, very like hierarchical the- where it was. It is very hierarchical, but the leaders who can never be contradicted are the mm. worst because they may be doing something terrible or wrong and yeah. nobody has the guts to tell them and they're just going to perpetuate their errors. That's the uh, worst. Have you,
0: have you read The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande?
1: Oh, I love Atul Gawande, but I have not read that particular one.
0: It's fantastic. It started out with an operation that went wrong in the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, where a woman died in surgery because they didn't intubate fast enough. And when they were trying to intubate, it didn't work. And they they spent eight minutes trying to shove a tube down her throat instead of doing a tracheotomy. And the senior nurse was there Mm -hmm. basically telling them to do a fucking tracheotomy already, and they didn't listen. Right? And this woman's husband was a pilot. And in aviation, there is a very clear process. When things go wrong, there is a very thorough investigation to find out what happened. Yes. Same isn't really true in medicine.
1: It's right? becoming Not, more and more true because actually exactly. medicine has started to model after the aviation industry. Right,
0: and this was and this was this was the the spark of that, right, mm-hmm. which led to and aviation is dominated by checklists. Yes, right, everything has a checklist. And I'm learning to fly planes myself at the moment, and my life is just one checklist after another. <laughs> it's yeah, fantastic, yeah. right? Um, and so, what? Well, then. They they started applying the checklists in hospitals in Britain, mm-hmm. and basically, if you're running down a checklist, then if the I don't know, the chief surgeon, forty years experience and blah 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 blah, which actually means his training is forty years out of date. But never mind that. Right. I said that. <laughs> right. I mean, on a slight aside, my grandfather was a doctor. He was a general practitioner, what you'd call a family doctor, mm-hmm. and he graduated from Guy's Hospital in I think. 1914 something like that okay um no it must have been 1915 16 something like that right and i saw his records we have like scans of them right his entire training to become a doctor was two and a half years at guy's hospital Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he was still seeing patients in the Mm -hmm. 1980s yeah. Isn't that a horrifying thought?
1: We, I mean, <laughs> not necessarily because he continued to learn throughout his career. Maybe right? he did. I would, I would assume so. <laughs> I would hope. You, I would hope. I mean, even if I mean not, otherwise
0: uh, he'd otherwise have missed the whole antibiotics thing.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> antibiotics came out when he'd been a doctor for 25 years.
1: Yeah. I mean, I um, think that um, there's no way that you go through your medical career and not have your approach modified. One um, if not daily, you know, at least regularly, because there are so many times you see something and it's like, oh, I've never seen that in training. I guess um, now I got to look that up, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, um,
0: yeah. So, so basically get back to the checklist, mm-hmm. like when they're going through the checklist, if this senior surgeon with 40 years experience or whatever, skips a step, right? Anyone in the room can say, oh, actually, hang on, we've skipped a step. Yes. Right. Actually, I had a I had a flight instructor who let me take off without my my takeoff flaps extended. Oh. <laughs> but, I mean, let me do it because it's perfectly safe if you. If oh, you okay, a, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's, not, it's not a dangerous mistake. Okay. But then, then when I got to the point in takeoff where you go through the the felt check, which the um, you know, flaps, engine, lights, trim, mm-hmm. and I went flaps, Oh. I forgot my flat. He went. Oh yes, so it you became did. relevant really quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so a good instructor doesn't let you make dangerous mistakes. Yeah, um, but, they, but they do let you make lots of mistakes as long as you, you know, as long as you can survive the the outcome.
1: Yeah, Fine. honestly, a lot of it is um, a lot of being a good leader is just um, handing over what can yeah. be handed over. Because if you gotta micromanage everything, you are stunting the growth of your students in the ways that, you know, they could, you need them to develop leadership yeah. skills. If nothing else, you need to take vacation once a year.
0: <laughs> well, yes. Oh, after once every nine years. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, the book, the checklist manifesto is basically the story of how checklists went from aviation into mm-hmm. surgery primarily as fantastic book. Um, but okay. So we were talking about, uh, your outcomes, your system is optimized for outcomes and you have a feedback mechanism to make sure that the outcomes are what you want them to be.
1: Yeah, we're constantly um, revising the system. Yeah, of course.
0: Yeah. So but then the actual training is all about process.
1: Yes. So the next Sounds part like is that. the the process focused fencer, right? HEMA right. is a competitive sport, but healthy competition should not require you to hope that other people are going to fail so that you can succeed. Wow. Unfortunately, in our tournament world, you know, it's kind of a zero-sum game, but we mm. try to kind of structure our school so that nothing is a zero-sum game. We use tournaments as a learning tool, we mm. set appropriate expectations, and we define our successes in terms of a team-oriented growth mindset. So for example... We happen to have at our school the number one ranked woman longsword fighter in the world. Okay. She started, um, that's Rochelle DeBolt. Okay. She started in 2020, and she basically learned during lockdown. She began competing in the summer of 2021. She won her first medal in 2022. And since then, she has been basically unstoppable. She just like, she shows up, she wins gold, she goes home, right? But this year at SoCal Sword Fight, which just happened a couple months ago, she lost her finals match, and she took silver. Now, in some schools, this may be a a big disappointment. Right, this is like huge, and it may prompt a discussion about whether or not she deserves to be ranked at the top. Um, It may cause her to reevaluate her whole life, but... At our school, we saw it as an opportunity to make her even better. We were kind of glad that we found that somebody found one trick that um, the other fencer pulled off against her, right, twice. It was like, it's um, rare how after the bind, she did it twice, and that decided the whole match, right? right? Now everybody at our school can train against that technique, and we're all better for it. So sure. she didn't win, but we all win.
0: Yeah, And and... You know, if you go through a tournament just winning every fight, you come out and you might come out much, with medals. Are you? You're not learning very much, no.
1: No, and like another example, we had a new fencer enter the beginners tournament um, for cutting, beginners cutting tournament. Mm-hmm. We don't even train cutting with sharps okay. at our school. We cut with wasters and fetters, and this was his first time ever cutting tatami, but he ended up taking bronze. Wow. So- Everyone at the school can take pride in his achievement, of course, because we all have the same fundamentals training that translated well to cutting to Tommy. And some mm-hmm. of us may be motivated to try cutting tournaments in the future, right? I want to do cutting in the future because that's I something love I'm not going to get hit in the head. <laughs> yeah, right? definitely not. So with that, we all win. Um, we had another fencer who... Actually, did a like had a a respectable performance. He was top quarter in his tier, but he realized during his tournament that all the training he does at high speed, high intensity, wasn't as helpful to his fencing as he previously thought. And he also decided that hand sniping just wasn't worth it because it just like results in doubles. And he has since intentionally he slowed down his training and just focused more on quality of technique. And everyone has appreciated fencing against him in his new approach. And so we're really glad that this tournament experience helped him to change his focus. So he didn't win a medal either, but we all win. Right. right so a lot of it is just framing your wins in such a way that the fencer gets something out of the experience of the tournament, mm-hmm. and then we all get something out of it as a school.
0: Yeah, and that's true in like every area. Like, you know, my, my kids... My oldest child has, like, her super important exams they take when they're 16 now. And since they were little, it's been, um, oh, you did well in the test. Oh, well done. That's nice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, acknowledge, acknowledge successes, but, oh, my goodness, you worked so hard for that. That was fantastic. Yes. yes, of course. We should do this, that, and the other to celebrate how hard you worked.
1: That is the right? thing that actually builds someone's character. Yeah, and, and
0: it actually um, gets better results, Yes. Because she isn't, I mean, she probably can't, she's upstairs in her room, so she won't be here. So, yeah, you shouldn't really talk about teenagers. They, they, they basically want you to not exist when you're not in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but she, she was, yeah, she's not worried about the exams at all. Yeah, that's perfect. Right? Because, because if she, if something goes wrong and she does really badly, um, if she needs that, a good grade in that particular subject, she can just take the exam again. Yep. Um, at any point in her life going forward. I mean, you know, people sometimes take these exams in their thirties or forties. Some do it just for fun. Yep. <laughs> right. Um, so it's, it's like, you know, we're not focusing at all on the outcome. It's all about the process. And Perfect. We, we have a reasonable expectation of good outcomes based on her predicted grades and stuff. Yeah. But even if we didn't, we wouldn't actually care particularly be like okay, it's only a yeah. problem if there's something she wants to do let's say she wants to go to a particular university to do a particular subject and she's going to need these grades to get there, then those outcomes matter to her for this reason, yes, but that's the only only reason we would hate it seriously at all
1: and and I'm not saying that like the outcomes never matter at all they mm. like you said they matter greatly sometimes, but Focusing on the outcomes is not going to get you there.
0: Exactly. It's a,
1: you got to focus on like, you know, when, when you see um, Olympic athletes being interviewed after they won gold, they're not, they're going, yeah, a lot was riding on this performance and I needed to do it for my mom. Right. Like that's not why, why they did it. Right. They, they, the most successful athletes, they'll say in their interviews afterwards, I have done this a thousand times. I just knew I had to do it one more time. Yeah. And they focused on doing the thing that they practiced.
0: Right. Yeah. I, actually, my fencing coach years ago told me a story about this fencer he trained who was one point away from winning the British Championships. And he fluffed it because mm. in his head, he was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be British champion. Oh, my yeah. God, I'm going to be British champion. And then he lost it. He came yeah.
1: In our... <laughs> right. um.
0: It's like, yeah. As soon as you focus on the outcome, it all goes to shit.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Or even like you know, you you start you start assessing your performance too early, right? You're like, oh, I missed yeah. I missed that, and now now like it's it's all over. It's a disaster, and you don't recognize that there are a lot more exchanges left to go. Your mantra yeah. to yourself should be, okay, next exchange. Next exchange, you should never be focused back on like, okay, that sucked. Right. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm worthless as a person. And don't it's go funny, you
0: I had a, a student of mine years ago who came for a lot of private lessons, and she was an airline pilot. And one thing I had difficulty with, is like we would do a thing, and then I'd ask her to review what we had just done. Mm-hmm. And she, she had difficulty doing it. I was like, so why is, why is this difficult? She said, well, because we are taught not to... Go back and look what just has happened because you're mm-hmm. in a machine up in the sky. You have to be looking at what is happening and what yes. might happen. You can't be thinking about what did happen because that's already gone. There's nothing you can do about. It. Yeah, right. It's like that's a really interesting kind of different approach. And of course, as soon as the plane is on the ground, then the you know yeah. the aviation authorities come in and they do all the all the.
1: And then you review, and that's that's and what we do to our our fencers yeah. too. Is like we'll take video. I will be there. Um, next to the ring recording your entire match and you will review it in your private lesson two weeks later. But right. we're not going to talk about the last exchange. That's not going to help no. you to win.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So can you just – the way you uh, expressed it, system for outcomes, can you just say that thing again? Like how you, you, you have a two-pronged approach and it's system for
1: Oh the yes, outcomes. the system should be set up with a focus on outcomes. Yeah, the fencer should be trained with a focus on process.
0: That's genius, right? That that articulation of it is genius, All right? I'm, I'm, I wanted you to repeat it because I wanted everyone listening to get that <laughs> and and drill it into their heads because yeah. it's, it's magic. Okay, brilliant. So um, we should talk about Fraufecht. Yeah, okay. So why did you organize it, and what? Benefits does it bring?
1: So, our also, what has... is it?
0: What is it? Oh, yeah, that so... might be a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it means because I did yeah. the research.
1: <laughs> Fraufecht, as the name suggests, is women fighting. It's um, it's a a HEMA tournament event um, centered around women. So women are the one. Like all the tournaments are women's tournaments. Um, all the instructors that we bring in are women. Um, they're the ones, um, doing the, the ring judging or Mm -hmm. ring bossing, I guess, like the line judges can be men. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's a great weekend where we just get together every, um, Labor Day weekend in the U.S. and, and we, we fight.
0: When is Labor Day?
1: Um, September, the first weekend of September.
0: Okay. Just thinking, because... People living in maybe France might want to come. That's right. They don't yeah. know when Labour Day is. Oh <laughs> yes, please come. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. So our school had already been running a co-ed tournament, Battleborn, mm-hmm. and we found it was a great way for us to build community, to do our part, and um, we just felt that women needed a space in this male-dominated sport.
0: Okay, just just some specifics. So Battleborn is co-ed. In, okay. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every event I've been to. Every has event had is At co-ed. least a few. Women. So what? So you mean just like a regular? It's just an event, open,
1: yeah. It's just a regular diff, event, okay. right? Right. Yeah, and um, we just felt that, you know, in this male-dominated sport, there is not a good space that is carved out for women. Right. There really hasn't been much, right? At the time we started FrauFect, there had been a couple of dedicated women's events on the East Coast, and the rest of the U.S. had nothing west of New York.
0: But I mean, Fran was doing stuff in the U.K. though at that time, Fran LaQuata. She, yes. she's had she's had some women only events going on. But for quite is a while. that
1: that's east of New York? That is east. of New
0: I'm not. I'm not disputing your your, yes. your west of New York statement. am just, yeah. just in
1: the in the U.S. there just hasn't been much. Okay. And um, why do you think that is? I think it's just young the sport is young right we but we recognize that we needed more opportunities for women to gather and fight be featured as instructors and ring directors Mm -hmm. and just overall to support each other we're very lucky in my school that we have a lot of women but we really you know and we really obviously try to foster an environment that is welcoming for that but some of the women who came to Fraufecht are the only women in their club yeah Um, and then the other thing is yeah it's hard um and another thing is like all the other women's events at the time only offered longsword, right? Most events nowadays will offer a variety of open tournaments and then a token women's longsword tournament almost yeah. like an as an afterthought. So for the women who only competed in women's events, they were really getting pigeonholed. Mm. So we were the ol- the first ones in the U.S. to offer other weapons. So our... Inaugural Fraufecht event was last year, and we included the first women's broadsword tournament in the world, the first women's saber tournament outside of Europe, the f- largest women's rapier tournament ever held.
0: Really? And this year, we're, How many women yeah. did you have for that?
1: Um, something like twenty.
0: I have See, to. See, that's have, not. A, that's me, not a huge. It's not
1: huge. Tournament. That's the. That's the and for thing. For that to be the
0: biggest women's rapier tournament ever, that says quite a lot about the right. state of play. Okay. Exactly.
1: And this year we're adding in smallsword. We're even toying Excellent. with the idea of um, allowing men to participate with like a token open longsword tournament to sort of flip the script.
0: You could. You could.
1: We're currently <laughs> taking suggestions for all kinds of goofy rules that we can do for the open tournament. It'll be it'll be fun. We don't want yeah. it to be like every other open tournament.
0: Okay. Um, do you actually get a lot of men coming to the event as like sort of spectators or backup or whatever
1: we had a lot and um yeah
0: so, luckily, so what, are, what is there anything there for them to actually do in terms of like classes or tournaments or anything like that
1: so they're are able they just, to take any of the classes okay they're just they happen to be instructed by women but they're not only for women sure. um and um, it turns out, so last year, we tried to have only women judging because we didn't want, um, like, we wanted to put women in the positions of authority. We didn't want, yeah. like, men judging women. But yeah. then it turned out all the women felt like we didn't have a chance to fight enough because we were judging all the time. True. And this year, when we, um, when we sat down with our new committee to, to um, organize this year's event, everybody was like, can you just like make the men do the judging? Cause that's kind of Scott work. We want a fence. And so, um, so we're doing that this year. But yeah, no, we actually were really, um, we were really fortunate. I think that there were a lot of men who came in as like either just like hangers on, but just like just to support the event. Cause there's a lot of staffing positions that, that, um, need to be filled so that so that women can can get out there and
0: fight and, and honestly i have been to an awful lot of events where there were an awful lot of male instructors and an awful lot of women helping to run the event but getting no particular like authority or position of. yeah you know they were there yeah. basically as admin support right there's yeah, a so lot of I, moms. I, yeah. I, I love the idea of having HEMA the dance, basically mm-hmm. running the behind the things, scenes stuff and making sure everyone is fed and hydrated and yeah. has access to first aid and all that right. sort of stuff. And, right. and it's the women who are actually like judging it and doing the fencing. And mm-hmm. that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so why – there will be people listening who do not understand why – you feel it's necessary to have a women-only event. Now, obviously, the idea fills me with glee. But, <laughs> but what is what are you trying to accomplish with it that you couldn't accomplish with uh, an open event?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's funny that we even have to ask this question in HEMA sure. because it shows how much we're a baby sport and we're mm-hmm. constantly reinventing the wheel and acting like we're just blindsided by civilization, right? <laughs> to those who say... <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. To
1: to those who say that women's events are unnecessary, I say, have you heard of literally any other sport? Because if we have women's golf or women's basketball or women's tennis, and those sports are not played fundamentally differently by men and women, why shouldn't we have women's sword fighting? We even have women's chess. And right, though, like, why we have that is completely unclear to me, I must admit. But we often forget in our baby sport that in civilized sports, it's not normal to have one big game where everybody comes. It's not normal for seasoned champions to play alongside novices who just began last week, right? If I'm new to tennis and I sign up for a tournament after two months of lessons, I'm not going to be put in a pool with Serena Williams. No. But that's what happens essentially in HEMA, right? Yeah. It's natural to see more and more segregation into niches as a sport gentrifies and becomes more mainstream. So the future sure. of HEMA is not only women's tournaments, it's middle school tournaments, it's short people tournaments, it's over 65 tournaments, it's left-handed tournaments, it's maybe physician, mom, crafter, baker, singer, writer tournaments, right? And I'm here for all of it because I strongly believe that if we build these spaces, they will come. And as more and more people feel acknowledged and included and represented, it will increase participation in our sport and it will ultimately strengthen the whole community.
0: Right. And that's, that's the thing that I think people often miss mm-hmm. because what happens when you have these separate spaces is you get more people overall. Yes. There's a, there's a people who are not used to being not welcome or not used to being the sort of not the focus of attention. Um, can Sometimes feel like rejected that they're not allowed to go to this particular tournament or event yeah. or whatever, and I think they project that onto everyone else. The so they'll assume that, that, that they'll assume that well, if you have these these segregated events. Mm -hmm. That will basically just repel people and stop people from joining and stop people from wanting to do it. When in fact, the absolute reverse is true, as has been demonstrated in every sport that ever made it to the Olympics.
1: So interesting. In terms of like tournament participation, I've actually looked at the data from some of the largest U.S. tournaments. And there's this trend that almost twice as many women will participate in the women's only tournament as did in the open tournaments of the same weapon. Yeah. So having that extra category increased overall participation. It makes Hema more inclusive, not less inclusive.
0: I think we've made the case. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, I do understand the idea that you know you're supposed to be a martial artist. You're supposed to show up and and do against. You know, I mean, we really ought to have weight classes for a lot of. What yeah, there are um, so
1: many factors that go into um, right outcomes
0: yeah um and you know it it, there's i think my only real hesitation about the whole thing is if i think of tournaments as simply like learning opportunities they are Mm -hmm. useful they're a useful stage in any fences education to Mm -hmm. me they're never the end game right i don't Mm -hmm. correct unless unless a student specifically requests it i don't teach people to win tournaments I right. teach oh, people, don't, like, yeah, Fiori's Art of Arms or Capo Ferro's Rapier or whatever. Right. And then we adapt that for tournaments as necessary. But right. that is not my focus. My focus is on the actual historical art, right? So, but the problem with these, these tournaments is they are, they are a blessing and a curse in that they are, they are a thing that attracts people in because one of the first questions that people ask when I say what I do is, oh, do you have tournaments? Like, mm. well, yes, they do exist. Mm -hmm. Um, but as soon as you start treating it as the, like, okay, if you're a sport fencer, you win an Olympic gold medal. Everything you did is by definition correct. Uh huh. Right. No one can argue with your Olympic gold medal. So long as you didn't actually cheat. Right. They can't argue with it. Right. It is by definition, you have done the thing you're supposed to do. Right. Um, whereas that isn't necessarily true if you're trying to recreate a, a medieval art what you're doing in the tournament may be completely wrong.
1: Which is why it's important in HEMA. And so many of us don't want it to become an Olympic sport because as soon as it's in the Olympics, then there's one rule set. It's important for us to be able to um, have different rule sets to highlight different aspects of fencing that are important to different groups. That's actually the main reason we got into hosting tournaments is because we wanted to have a say in the tournament
0: in the rule, rule set. sets. Excellent. Now, it, it does occur to me that one, I mean, I have no interest in seeing long swords in the Olympics at all, right? <laughs> None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Olympics is where martial arts go to die. Right. But the um, I can imagine if you have, say, 15 different rule sets, mm-hmm. right? And when the fencers come on the piece, they are told which rule set they're playing under right now.
1: Oh. So they have to be able to do all this. Randomize. You have to just be an all round good fighter.
0: And, and it's a randomized thing. So you don't know which rules. You don't I know whether handguns are going to be allowed. You don't know whether <laughs> palm strikes will be allowed. You don't know whether wrestlings will be allowed. You, you know, all the various things. Now, mm-hmm. they'll have to standardize the equipment so you're wearing the right gear. Yeah. But I, but I think.
1: I love yeah. that idea because that's what's life, but a standardized. Test were under random rules right like (laughs) everything like every day i show up to work and i don't know what kind of cases i'm gonna get i better have studied everything right
0: right that's why i took what 14 years or whatever it was (laughs) as opposed to two and a half for my grandfather (laughs) (laughs) although to be fair to be fair there was there is more than seven times as much medical stuff known now as was known then yeah and
1: and it keeps exploding and it keeps exploding exactly
0: Um, Okay, so there's a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. um, And one of them is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet?
1: So funny. Um, You've actually inspired me to act on some of my good ideas in the last couple of weeks (laughs) since you sent me this question. (laughs) Okay. So I had to change my answer to this question as I've checked off things from my bucket list. What have so checked off? Thank you for this question. <laughs> I actually, I undertook um, a research project um, for like a statistics-based article um, on performance of women in open tournaments versus women's tournaments. Oh, wow. um, I wanted to study the data from multiple big gatherings and just see, right? Cuz what i find is that you know, in any given um open tournament maybe 10% will be women, but then when you get um to the cut for getting out of pools, then it goes down to like 6 to 8% and then, you know, as you go on, it just drops off disproportionately sure. and by the time we're talking about medals, in most events in the last year, there have been zero percent women yeah. attaining medals, um, and I wanted to look at that and see how strong of a trend that was, and um, and talk about the factors that that account for this difference, this discrepancy between participation and outcomes.
0: Okay. So you ha- this is something you've done.
1: I've started to.
0: You started it. Okay. Yeah. All right, I have so, I
1: have the preliminary data, and excellent. I've kind of talked about. Um, I've, as, I've, as
0: soon as it's done, you let yes. me know, and I will send it out to my newsletter mailing list. Da, da, da. Oh,
1: absolutely, yes. yeah, yeah. That is um, a
0: fascinating idea. Mm-hmm.
1: It's interesting to see the trend of um, of women outcomes in in the higher levels not representing their level of participation in the overall tournament. Um, We have to be careful um, how we interpret that data. There are certain things we cannot conclude. We cannot conclude that women are inherently worse, that women are not working as hard. I think I know something about hard work, and based on all available evidence, I kind of have to categorically reject any argument that implies that the vast majority of men are training harder than the vast majority of women like just I, I
0: think you'd have to be pretty stupid to make that assertion. I mean,
1: I don't know. I think it it, it can get made, right? Like I know women sure. who train fifteen to twenty hours per week. It's hard for me to explain then why they're getting trounced by the men in their clubs who only show up one to two hours a week. We have to we cannot just say that they're not working as hard. And um, we cannot conclude that women would be able to outperform men if they just trained more right? Everyone sure. has a different trajectory with outcome yield to effort. Everyone has a plateau or a peak. And there may not be enough hours in a lifetime for some of us to bring their performance to the level of some others. Sure. So it would be dangerous to just encourage women to keep pushing harder. It may incur, you know, unnecessary injuries and whatnot. And um, there's there's a lot of factors that go into performance outcomes, right? Like there is, of course, the training, the years in HEMA, the hours per week. There's also um, physical ability or limitations. Maybe there are height and weight, upper body strength, muscle mass, speed, all of that. Um, I've heard it argued that tournament rule sets are favoring the abilities of men or that training and body mechanics are tailored for... Um, men and that's an interesting one I'd like to see more of Um, yeah it's worth investigating at least Mm -hmm. we have to look at the fields where there used to be a gender gap and now there isn't like math right Right. or medicine is now over 50% women Um, there used to be a difference in expectations and women were just kind of taught like oh yeah women suck at math Mm -hmm. and then
0: which, is, which is why female mathematicians sent um, Louis, no, Neil Armstrong to the moon.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, like I mean you know, and I was raised obviously in Asia where there is no gender gap and there just isn't. We're not taught that we're any worse than math and we train the same way and and we are the same. And right. and so how so where in Asia, point, if I can ask? Um China. Okay. That's where I, I was born. I didn't I actually grew up in the U.S., but um, you know that's where I first started going to school and like first and second right. grade. Right? And I to this day I'm really good at math, but um, but I wasn't taught that that I shouldn't be. Right. And so we have to look at the gender gaps in other fields that have closed and why. And it isn't just demanding more work. It's you know. There are maybe other factors, and we don't know. There could be psychological factors, right? Like women do sure. not believe that they can compete at a higher level. Um, I recently watched this interview with um, Brie Larson as she was preparing to um, to play Captain Marvel. And she said she was doing all this physical training, but she was not able to lift more than 200 pounds until... One day her trainer just lied to her and said, okay, you're about to break 190. And then she did it. And then she was able to exceed it only because in her head, she had this mental hurdle of like, I cannot break 200 pounds.
0: Right. Okay. So
1: yeah, definitely more work needs to be done.
0: All right. and, and your, But your investigation may, may shed some interesting insight as to what's happening to prevent women progressing. Yeah, maybe. Okay.
1: Hopefully a lot of other people will jump on and investigate too.
0: That would be helpful, yes. it shouldn't just be the one person doing yeah. it. Brilliant.
1: So um, after everything I said, I should add that there is a huge value in continuing open tournaments in addition to all the niche tournaments that I foresee coming. Um, a lot of women competitors have told me that they would be really unhappy if they could not benchmark themselves against all comers, regardless of their own level of competition. Right? This is important. Sure. It's not only the top ranked women who say that they're bored fighting against women. Um, I think that they just see that there's an inherent value to competing against as many people as possible. So I hope that people will not get the wrong idea that we're wanting women's tournaments instead of open tournaments. I think that we could be um, giving the impression that we're double dipping here because there are no men's tournaments, but- Okay,
0: hang on a sec. Why, would you have any objection to there being a men's tournament?
1: No, I wouldn't. Um, In addition to the open tournament, And if you actually look at the data from ranked tournaments where fighters are sorted into different tiers based on their HEMA ratings, Mm -hmm. it actually becomes clear that tier A in any weapon is effectively already men's anyway. Right, of course. So for now, what we're doing is providing a similar opportunity for women to fight against only women. But hopefully in the future, you know, there are so many women doing HEMA that it's not even considered a gender minority anymore.
0: Right. I mean, I may be a bloke, but I have absolutely no hope against Serena Williams in tennis. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she could she could have just broken her leg and be hobbling about on crutches and she'd still slaughter me.
1: And, and right. there are certainly women in HEMA that can trash you know the majority of men um but, but at the very top level
0: yet. Yeah. yeah and i th- i'm not sure whether this has ever been done but i would imagine that the same would hold true for instance in sport fencing where mm. you'd have if you put the men's and women's gold medalists olympic gold medalists in the three weapons against each other i would expect the men to win, to win most of those because they're simply Mostly physiologically faster.
1: Yeah. I mean, and there was, I think, a match a few years ago, um, speaking of tennis, right, where they took like the 200th something ranked man and he basically destroyed Serena Williams. So,
0: (laughs) wow. You know, I mean, (laughs) yeah. So, so basically we have, we have, yeah, we have de facto male, men only tournaments anyway. Yes. So,
1: so this yeah, is not again, providing an extra like, double-dipped opportunity. It's just trying to provide somewhat similar opportunities.
0: Right. And, and honestly, I don't have a problem with the double-dipping thing. It's like um, if you have an underrepresented group, you want to give them as many op- you know, opportunities as possible to have a go.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, as long means- as it doesn't start to look like affirmative action, um, which... Then continues the, it perpetuates the perception that they need extra help, which we don't want. Okay, right? fair enough. As a minority, I really, I really don't like the perception that, that I was given extra help in attaining the things that I've attained.
0: Okay, that's yeah, that's that's a perspective. Obviously, you know, being middle aged white dude, I hadn't really <laughs> thought of. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, like we want we want to highlight the merits that people have, and we want to give them opportunities to, to let them shine by their merit, I think.
0: Okay. Then, then here's a thought for you. This podcast, I have a 51% female guest policy, mm-hmm. right? Which is by... Oh, so
1: you have a quota pretty much, have, that you're trying to... Ab- absolutely.
0: You know, no, yeah, no, I no. Ab- I absolutely, I, it's like one of the, the, founding ideas of, of the podcast is at least half the guests must be women. Okay. Right. Um, because, you know, the idea is I want representation to help with getting more women to do historical martial arts, yeah. right? And it struck me as one way to do it.
1: That's a very, like, noble effort. Well, like.
0: but it's also affirmative action.
1: It is. And I would hate for someone to say, oh, you were interviewed by a guy because you're a woman, right? I would like them to think that I was interviewed based on the cool things that I'm doing in HEMA?
0: Well, it can be both. Because the thing is, I've, this is episode about 160-something. Mm-hmm. And I've had people on of all sorts of, basically, it's an excuse to talk to interesting people, as so long as yeah. there's at least a plausible sword connection. So I've mm-hmm. had people on here who don't do swords at all. Mm. And people on here who just collect swords and people on who are historians, right? And, and now you, you have,
1: have me here. who teaches and doesn't <laughs> <laughs> fight anymore.
0: Well, yeah, but, but, but also, you know, I mean, I've had somebody on who is a museums professional who's got one year of historical martial arts practice. Okay. Right? That was sufficient because it was really her expertise in the museum world that we were most interested in. Yeah. Because it is related to the historical bit of the historical martial arts thing. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, it does it does mean that okay, there are there are thousands and thousands of people doing historical martial arts. Yeah. Right. And hundreds of those are women, I think. Yeah. Rather than that. You know, right. If right. you so mo-
1: actually have a fair representation, you may have like ten percent women, not fifty one
0: percent. Right. But in my, yeah, and in, when I ran my school, um, we had about 40% women most of the time. Yeah. And I do know at least one club that has about 50% women. So we're representative of that club. Right.
1: Yeah. And we're not, <laughs> but, you know, we're not 50%, but we're a significant percentage higher right. women and gender minorities than, than other clubs.
0: But then, you know, people will say, well, okay, you haven't invited this person on yet. And you haven't invited this other person on yet, and they could go, well, actually, this middle-aged white dude is a more logical choice for a historical martial arts podcast because massive, you know, 20 years of historical martial arts training or whatever. Yeah. Whereas this woman is less like, but then again, my point is not to offer a fair and open playing field for Mm -hmm. my guests to compete on, because my guests aren't competing with each other. Right. right, it's just it's just I get to talk to people, whoever I want to because it's my show yeah. and I can invite anyone I like. And yeah. some say yes, and some say no. Yeah, right. And um, I absolutely
1: think that um, it's a great way to um, gain additional perspectives and to have interesting conversations. And, and so, um,
0: and nobody has yet said to me. I mean, and I, I do have students and listeners who know me well enough to actually be able to say this if they thought it. Hmm. Um, Guy, you really shouldn't have had her on. She wasn't up to it. That has never happened yet.
1: That's good, right? right? And so, you should definitely, and this is where um, I think um, affirmative action, if you will, must be done really carefully because you are highlighting someone of a minority. You need to highlight the ones that are really strong and would be a good model you don't want to highlight somebody who is weak and then that'll just perpetuate the stereotype like oh see that's the affirmative action candidate and they were weak you don't want that right
0: yeah um i think weak and strong are maybe not the best adjectives to use here, but Mm -hmm. um but like should we say very qualified
1: or qualified
0: interesting relevant sure um yeah not
1: not like a physical (laughs) strength and weakness analogy yeah although there have
0: been women on the show who could certainly deadlift more than i can so <laughs> excellent um okay so is that sufficient for women's tournaments oh i think that's like
1: more than sufficient <laughs> you can feel okay. free to cut out any of that that you wanted to
0: No, honestly long is good and you know people are driving a long distance maybe they're driving from reno to Las Vegas, <laughs> right and we're going to get them maybe a quarter, of the, a way quarter there. of the way there yeah yeah <laughs> yeah okay um shall i ask you my last question
1: okay
0: um, okay so what haven't you what's the best um, that you haven't acted like you it?
1: know i've been talking about um doing a youtube channel for my hema for life content where okay, i sorry, share just
0: just tell us about I've, i oh, actually yeah. have it on one of the questions um What is HEMA for Life? Tell us about HEMA for Life. I forgot to ask it earlier.
1: That's okay. That's okay. Um, Yeah. So in general, right, like um, HEMA is aging as a sport. Yeah. It's um, becoming more sophisticated as well with a new generation arising that is building on the foundation of knowledge that old guys like my husband have had to acquire firsthand. Um, The level of competition is rising. The level of scholarship is also rising. What happens in tournaments actually starting to look like what happens in manuals a lot of times, right? And all of that requires our athletes to be kind of the total package. So back in the aughts, you could win tournaments just by being brawny. Um, Now you have to be mentally fit, both intellectually, like knowing when to use which martial techniques um, in the moment, and psychologically, psychologically. Like being in control of your thoughts and emotions so that you don't have a mental breakdown and throw away all the hard work that you did in your training. And furthermore, as HEMA kind of ages as a sport, we want our athletes to be able to age gracefully in the sport. Mm -hmm. We don't want people to burn out or injure out in their 20s and 30s. We want them to continue to enjoy HEMA into their 50s, 60s, and 70s and beyond. And that requires a sudden certain, um, certain flexibility and resilience. So that's why the Noble Science Academy has launched our HEMA for Life program. HEMA for Life is an ongoing series of workshops focused on longevity in our HEMA practice. So I'm developing sports psychology exercises to help fencers um, process their fears, define productive and attainable goals, give and receive feedback, and overall pull off their best performance when it matters the most. Sure. We also have certified personal trainers teaching proper body mechanics, corrective Mm -hmm. exercises, adapting training for overcoming injury.
0: Yeah. And then we have my husband. That's an area I've specialized in myself. Oh,
1: good. Yeah. And then we also have my husband, Michael Forrest, um, teaching how to teach basically. So his most recent workshop was on ring coaching and what to say and what not to say to keep your fencer's head in the game. We've just gotten started within the last year, so right now it's like a blog and some workshops that we've given individually at various HEMA events when we've been invited to teach. But eventually we're going to gather all of this together as one resource, maybe mm-hmm. instructional videos when some of us have found the appetite for video editing, which we so far haven't. Um, <laughs> okay. Or maybe maybe a podcast if we don't um, want a video edit. So that's... That's one good idea that's been on the back burner. I can't say that I haven't acted on it because at least I've like grabbed a YouTube channel for the <laughs> for the yeah, content.
0: It sounds like you're putting together a like a a, a complete package of resilience training for yeah. mental and physical training. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it's I would imagine that you'll find that some some of it is best presented at, in book form some of it is best mm-hmm. presented in video some of it's best mm-hmm. presented in audio yes um, i wouldn't i wouldn't fixate on a particular medium at any at any time that's
1: like that's a good point yeah like i um, actually think that my psychology exercises can be like a guided journal or something
0: right. and as you particularly sort of psychological factors are often particularly good over audio because yeah. having a person explain it to you
1: yeah like as so in a podcast or whatever
0: yeah like um you know I have online courses um mm-hmm. I have the podcast I'm not using the podcast for teaching purposes really mm-hmm. um but like my last course was how to teach and it is mostly audio. that was a good one
1: yeah that was a oh, really you, good you've one. seen it
0: yeah oh oh good you liked it excellent yeah well, that's nice <laughs> I never quite know what to say <laughs> when people say things like that it always surprises me that anyone's ever looked at it well, I mean,
1: you should never assume that people, like, know what you're talking about, right? But but yes, I, I've looked into it and I oh. liked
0: it. Oh, good. Um, and, and some stuff is, like, best in book form. Like, you know, I find presenting research into the treatises when it comes to, okay, Fiore says this in Italian. This is what I think it is in English. This is mm-hmm. what I think that actually means. This is how we do it. Mm-hmm. All of that up to the point where you're showing the movement is best in text because then people right. can see the details. Yeah. Right. And they can match this word in English up with this word in Italian and yeah. see how you're getting from one to the other and they can take their time over it. Yep. So if like I read a
1: slideshow maybe.
0: Or a book. I mean, yeah. so if I read that aloud, the language is coming at the pace of speech, but sometimes mm-hmm. you want to go a lot slower and sometimes yes. you can go a lot faster. And then for the actual motion and this is how i think this is done in practice video is best yeah so i these days i'm i'm putting links to videos in most of my books oh good right for that reason so we have that so we're not like nailed down to one specific medium yeah right any, any aspect of what um, we're doing has has its own ideal medium
1: yeah i think interactive ebooks would be really great for that you can like um embed a video into your book
0: oh as well e-book. i have done that but the way i do it is rather than um, embed the video file itself because firstly it makes for an enormous ebook yeah, secondly right. most ebook readers don't play it mm-hmm. or if they play it it's black and white and it just doesn't work
1: interesting um,
0: and um, it's very difficult to update it or change it yeah that's true. right so what i do is i have I use what's called a pretty link, which is like a, a redirectable link that goes via my website, mm-hmm. and then I have a QR code for that link, and it routes to a video that's on my Vimeo account. So somebody can point their smartphone at the page, and the QR mm-hmm. code will take them straight to the video. Yeah, yeah, and that way, like, let's say my interpretation changes or I or I reshoot a bunch of material, I can update the video without having to change the printed book or the ebook.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, so, yeah, it's very, very handy. And, you know, eventually we'll get to the point where you can reasonably embed videos in, in ebooks, but you'll still never be able to do it in print, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Um, okay. So, so the idea. For the idea you haven't acted on yet, are we going with the... I've got bringing, nothing, because I've started em- acting on everything I've thought. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's fine. And actually, a, a common thread with the people who, shall we say, come to my attention and get <laughs> invited onto the show, tends to be they have acted on a bunch of stuff, which is how yeah. they came to my attention. So, <laughs> right. Um, Okay, so but maybe bringing your Hema for Life program from your local club and making it more generally available.
1: Yeah. Okay. I think everyone would benefit. Okay.
0: Excellent. All right. My last question, which most people know is coming. Somebody gives you a million dollars or imaginary amount of money, bigger or smaller as you like, to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it?
1: Okay. So I'm I'm understanding that this is not not a million dollars in an actual like finite resource but i get to it, it, it's
0: it's, it's it's just a way of saying a gigantic watch of cash
1: a stupid load of money yeah with infinite resources i actually would provide one-on-one sports psychology coaching for hema athletes um but for okay. an actual million dollars that i should actually budget i would love to develop ai to enhance the performance of judges in hema tournaments okay Oh, um Why? now there's always opposition when we hear any suggestion of AI, because we're afraid that we're going to be replaced or that if a computer <laughs> can do a skill, then humans are not going to learn that valuable skill. Like right. for example, ChatGPT is said to have passed the medical board exam recently and there was this right, okay. big hullabaloo. Um but what it means by that is, like it scored sixty percent, which is just scraping absolute bottom, um, and the average human doctor performs much higher than that. Um,
0: And also, average human doctors can do things like take your pulse and listen to your chest through a stethoscope.
1: Right. So there's a lot more than generating text, but people seem to miss the real utility of AI by making these comparisons, right? If you have Mm. a machine that can perform at 60% and you have a human performing at 80%, but what about if you give a human a machine to assist it during the exam? Then that team can actually perform at 95% or higher. That is the real conversation we should be having about AI. So how this would work in HEMA judging is I envision a bunch of cameras, just cameras everywhere, and paired with visual interpretation software mm-hmm. that um, will determine not only who hit what and when, but proper edge alignment as defined by, you know what you want, like what exact degrees you want the edge alignment to be. So it's not only like, perfect edge alignment because then nobody would ever get it right, right? Or um, degree of blade rotation or timing, who hit what first, if that matters to the particular rule set. Um, And all this information would get calculated and fed in real time to a human director who then synthesizes the inputs and makes a final judgment call. So it's like line judges on steroids. It's like driving a Tesla. Maybe, yeah.
0: Um, well, I've I've been in my friend's Tesla, and okay. what what it was doing was reading the road ahead and telling him all sorts of things, like like there's a car over there, yeah, right, and there's something coming from the right, and whatever. Thing is, though, see, my brother does a lot of uh, research into tech companies and stuff, and knows infinitely more about self driving cars and AI and like that kind of do.
1: Yeah,
0: and the his he thinks that. Tesla will never get a truly self-driving car using mm-hmm. cameras. They need LiDAR as well. So do you think that the software will ever be good enough to do it from a purely visual input, or wouldn't it be better to have some kind of sensors in the weapons themselves, or LiDAR, or that sort of stuff as well? So We've got loads of money, we have the money for it. I mean,
1: Okay, but my <laughs> goal is really to enhance a human judge. And okay. have the human ultimately make the final call. Um, because when you're working with machines, and I do in radiology a lot, right? Sure. The human director has to be well-trained to determine when the AR, AR AI call is garbage, right? This mm-hmm. is what we do every day in radiology when we interface with our software helpers. Mm-hmm. We cannot just blindly accept what the software puts out. Because sometimes it makes really stupid mistakes. Um, Even though the vast majority of the time it's really helpful by taking away some of the really tedious and quantitative aspects of our job. And we're just left with making uh, a judgment call. Which I think really humans are best for that.
0: You're in the position of that Hema judge assisted by AI when you're at work. So like Mm -hmm. you have these, these software helpers. Um, There's getting to be
1: more and more of them as time goes on. And um, I think it's great because then we're left to operate at the top of our training and not just like... Scanning really hard to detect pulmonary nodules when the software can do that really easily and tell me how many there are and and measure them for me and then I can say okay this disease has progressed which is really what's important yeah. right so it frees me up to do to do what I'm really good at and I I hope for that for for Hema judges
0: okay um wouldn't okay I'm just going to push back a little bit mm-hmm. wouldn't the money perhaps be better spent Training and paying HEMA judges,
1: ah, because so, they're, they're not
0: properly trained and they they're not need paid. To be trained. Yeah, they yeah, they still need to be trained. And, and, they,
1: and I agree, they need to be cha- um, to be paid. So that, but how many HEMA judges are there, and how many tournaments are there? So file that under like obscene amount of money that that isn't even achievable in HEMA right now, as really? opposed to an actual million dollars, right? So the problem is. HEMA judging is currently done poorly on average, right? There are a few notable exceptions, and just as an aside, if we become aware of them, those judges are invited to come judge at Battleborn and they are paid a professional wage. But right now, a HEMA judge is great if they can get like 60% of the calls correct. Right? But if they can be enhanced to like 80, 90%, then they would really deserve to be paid professionally at all tournaments. So I'm potentially creating
0: jobs. Sure. But, um, okay, just just thinking about how much it would cost for the cameras. And so you need to have a camera set up, at least four cameras, probably more. Right? That's probably, well, the kind of quality cameras you are talking about, that's a couple of thousand dollars.
1: Okay. Right?
0: Plus a. Maybe you can have software that runs on a regular laptop and maybe you need a special computer, I don't know. But let's leave the computer out. Let's pretend or assume that, you know, you can use a regular laptop for it, right? And those are fairly abundant. Given how many rings are running at any given event, there's usually at least two, sometimes three. I've seen five. You'd need a separate camera setup for each ring.
1: Mm-hmm. So a couple thousand yeah. dollars there. So-,
0: so so that's 10. And then and then those are like expensive delicate machines and then yeah. by the time you've you've provided that for should we say half of all of the tournaments that's that's a lot of equipment for people to carry around it's a lot of equipment for people to maintain i i'm i, so, I think unless unless they come up with really cheap sensors i'm, I'm not I don't yeah
1: okay so hardware does get cheaper over time that is one thing so, i will say too that um by making that cost comparison, we are mm-hmm. undervaluing the cost of of humans because we think that we can get humans for free at most. Well, at the moment we do. <laughs> which is which is too bad. Um, because I think that if you were to take a human and actually give them the appropriate training. And then that's like, you know, counting their years of experience and all of their Mm -hmm. expertise. We're not appropriately valuing their expertise if we think that a $2,000 camera setup is less expensive than that. Um, Sure. Okay. But hang on. So at the moment, at the moment,
0: let's say you've got an event with 200 people mm -hmm. and you're paying, should we say, 10 judges a couple of grand for the weekend each, Mm -hmm. right? That's $20,000. That's going to mean that just to pay the judges, each person that like you made, your math is probably better than mine. So it certainly better than mine. So that's like each person will be paying a hundred dollars ju- entry fee just to pay the judges. That doesn't cover anything else, the hall right. run or the instructor or anything else. Right. So it's going to make historical martial arts events very that's, expensive that's, to But attend. that's
1: why it's a, um, it's a passion project right now for so many okay. of us. Right. But sure. I think that, um, you know, the, the investment in the software is a one-time investment that we, we just did sure. really good. And um, I really, like, a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but I think that judging is worth doing well and is sure. it's, it deserves to be paid well if you do it well. Um, and there are many reasons for bad judging, which... Um, Many of which just relate to limitations of human perception and training, That can, many of which can just be overcome by AI, right? So like the untrained human eye and the brain doesn't process visual stimuli fast enough to make accurate judgments in mm-hmm. a, you know, a setting where people are just beating the crap out of each other, right? Yeah. Um, like I've seen beginning line judges who consistently called points for the wrong fencer. Which <laughs> right, sure. is the basic <clears throat> task for a line judge and that's that's assuming that every weapon is just a baseball bat and not touching on edge alignment yeah. or sufficient contact or anything like that, right? Just say who hit what and they're doing <laughs> it wrong every time. <laughs> yeah. And like I know that I, I've had to stop as a line judge um, under very dire situations. And even though I know way more HEMA than a lay person, and I was doing the very best I could, I was just making people mad left and right, right? right. And then also humans have physical limits. We need to eat. We need to use the bathroom. We need to rest. We need to mentally gear up for the fight that we're going to be fighting in next. So we can't be doing it all the time up to that point. Um, we have to try to not be biased towards our teammates and all that, and AI would just even all that out and and make it much more consistent, right? And then also the the knowledge set that you um, that you need to impart on a human, you can just like input into an AI. So like we have to know the weapon and the movements to expect. In a particular mm-hmm. weapon, to be good at judging that weapon, right? right? Like in radiology, I have this saying: you only see what you look for, and you only look for what you know. Right. So that's why even an excellent rapier fencer doesn't do as well judging longsword, and vice sure. versa. Right? Yeah, they don't, they don't
0: recognize the pattern of what happens before the blow strikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so that's why it can be really hard to come up with enough judges at um, at tournaments most time, right? And then you also have to know the rule set. You, um, you know, we've had good, experienced judges make bad calls in tournaments because they weren't familiar with that particular rule set. So that's so, where AI would really shine because you can just, you can just input the rule set and. Mm-hmm it would be particularly adept at switching between rule sets. And then we can even have randomized tournaments where we're pulling at the last minute, what rule set we're using, right? AI would yeah. be great at that. A human would be
0: terrible unimaginably at terrible at that. <laughs> yeah. So- here's, a, here's a thought for you. They, they did something similar with sport fencing in the sixties and seventies, right? Where they electrified it, which basically took all of the guesswork about, out of did that hit actually land? But and in so a very all,
1: rudimentary fashion, right? Well, but it's a because you, ru- like, you have to you have like a physical conductivity.
0: Yeah, but but the the um, it's it's very straightforward. The rules of those particular weapons were such that the elec- saber was the last one to be electrified because it's by far the most complicated. But okay. falling for fallen for epée, dead easy. There has to be a certain amount of pressure on the tip. And in foil, it has to hit the right bit of the target. So you have a lame jacket, which has like electrical conductivity. And the rest of the your, your you know, mask and sleeves and whatnot don't have that on. So if it hits off target, it will register that it's hit, but it will um, register it as off target. And the floor also, you have these kind of metallic pieces where if the point hits the floor, it registers as hitting the floor. Okay. Um, so it's a very elegant and sophisticated way to do it and it completely destroyed the art of fencing as I see it because it, it turned everything from you have to make this so that a human judge can see it to you have to make it so that an electrical circuit has been completed it, right. it radically I mean, I'm not saying it made it worse I'm saying it well from my perspective obviously it made mm-hmm. it into a horror show that I had wanted no part of but right. as a sport it's arguably a lot better because it's a lot more, what's well, the word? here's my objective. question. Objective.
1: Yeah, it's more objective well, for sure. Here's my question for you, though. Yeah. How much say does the human judge have in overriding or kind of synthesizing what information the electrical circuit tells them? My,
0: okay, it's been a long time since I was involved in any kind of sport fencing thing, maybe coming up for 30 years now. Okay. But back then, it was the case that the director or the president of the bout um, had basically absolute authority to do pretty much whatever they liked. I mean, if if you're fencing um, and one light comes up, that's a hit. No one argues, right? If two lights come up, then there's interpretation to happen. Now, with okay. epee, you don't need that because if one light comes up, basically, the rule in epee is you have to hit anywhere on the body or head. Uh, or arms or limbs, basically anywhere on the person. Yeah. Um, and you have to do it two tenths of a second before they hit you. And okay. so if they hit at the same time, both lights go off and both fences get a point. If I hit two tenths of a second before you, my light goes off, I get a point, your light will not go off because my because light was, was on long. for two tenths of a second before that, right? Yeah. And again, the floor is the floor is electrified so that if you hit the floor, it doesn't register. Okay. So, so in EPE, Basically, the president is there to make sure no one breaks the rules or does something dangerous that they're not allowed to do. That's basically it, and to make sure the equipment's working properly. And and the, the president's job is really just to Tick. tell tell yeah to, yeah tell the fences when to go, tell them when to stop, right, and announce okay. the score, right. So that's with not foil, what I'm hoping for. Yeah, with foil, there's a lot more to it because there's the right away thing. So mm. if if one light goes off, then that's clear. If two lights go off, then the president has to decide who had priority. So if I was attacking you and you did a clear parry and riposted and hit me, and while you're reposting, I angulate around and I hit you as well, that's your parry ripost takes precedence over my continuation of the attack, for instance. okay. Right? So in foil, the president has to interpret what they've seen to a much greater degree. Okay. Same and is do you true find that it works as well.
1: better? How do you mean? Like having so my idea is that um, that you just have better data being fed to mm-hmm. a human who ultimately interprets what happened and um, and makes the final and call. And that's that's, right? that's pretty much
0: and what so that's pretty much what the electrification does for sport fencing. It makes it makes it very clear who hit who where. And where. Okay.
1: And so, why is that bad?
0: Um, it's not. Necessarily bad, but because of the way the rules were applied and interpreted, all sorts of things changed to the point that what wins you Olympic glory now would certainly get you killed if the swords were sharp. Okay. So, which is my objection because I want fencing to be a representation of a real sword fight with sharp swords, but that is not what the sport of fencing has now become. It used to be that. Okay. But it's no longer that, so and they electrification happened. is what what caused that.
1: I see. Okay, so I think that what happened was they didn't modify the rules to continue to encourage good fencing, in light of how it was. They tried. Right. Okay. They, they
0: tried over and over again to you know disallow this and. Yeah. You know, like for instance they introduced a rule where you couldn't cross your feet when you were doing sabre, so you couldn't do any kind of passing attacks because things were going so fast it was getting incredibly dangerous. Okay. Um because again with when when yeah. you're dealing with electrification, yeah. Right, you just need to get that hit two tenths of a second for, with epe, for instance, two tenths of a second before your opponent. Or with foil MC2. Yeah.
1: To Don't me hit? that is That is a problem of the rule set to begin with, Hmm. right? Because, like in HEMA tournaments, I have a problem even with um, after blows versus doubles. Yeah. Because
0: I can't stand it. I'm
1: like, I don't care if you did it three seconds afterwards. Like, we know from if you chop the head off of a chicken, it will continue to flap for like 30 seconds. You have tons of time to deal another. death, you know, death blow after you receive one. And so like in, in the rule sets that I have been consulted on, which is exactly one, um, (laughs) you know, that's not a thing. If you hit someone in the head and you get hit in the head, you both dead, you're both dead. And it doesn't matter who exactly did it first. But if you hit someone in the head and they hit you in the finger, sorry, you're getting points and the other person isn't. And I don't care what order particularly it happened in.
0: Right. And, and there are, there are rule sets that can certainly help, but mm-hmm. the example we have from sport fencing of what happened when this much more objective way of deciding who hit who and when came in is they were unable to adjust the rule sets to mm-hmm. the point where it didn't destroy fencing. And if, There's a brilliant book by a guy called Johann Harmenberg. It's called Epe 2.0. Okay. And he won Olympic gold in EPE in the men's individual and in the men's teams in 1980. And he was the guy more than anyone else who was responsible for the kind of bouncy, bouncy, flicky, flicky, uh... mod- modern sport fencing, because he figured out how to win according to the rules with the equipment that they had. Yeah. Right. He wasn't trying to recreate proper fencing. He was trying to make that light go off in a way that was scoring points. and that
1: is the problem with every every rule set gets gamified if used too much and that's why so many of us in HEMA are hoping Mm. to never see HEMA in the Olympics (laughs) because we don't want there to be one rule set we want everybody to try to highlight what they think is good fencing and to have multiple you know multiple rule sets that exist and um, so that you have to be an all around good fencer
0: Right. And if you read Harmanberg's book, there were all sorts of instances where, because they hated the way he was fencing so much, the authorities did everything they possibly could to stop him from winning tournaments. <laughs> right to the point of not selecting him for the national team, even though he'd uh, beaten everyone on that team twenty times.
1: Okay. Right. I mean,
0: they yeah. really, they really tried to keep fencing not bouncy, bouncy, flicky, flicky. Yeah. Right. But yeah. in the end the objective truth of who was hitting who and when won out. And, and no how matter much of what that they- is
1: also just having it as an Olympic sport also.
0: Right. But yeah. The stakes are high enough. Um, mm-hmm. And you see, I'm, I am a fan of like technical awards. Like, you know, yeah. someone may, may or may not have won the tournament, but they did this beautiful technique and it looked fantastic. And yes, this is what we're all here for. Technical Absolutely, have a Technical and
1: sportsmanship. Award. Yes. I love all right.
0: of that. I'm, I'm totally in favor of those. Um, my my concern with the AI approach is by prioritizing the absolute truth of who hit who and when
1: but you can prioritize so much more than that it's so much more um, sophisticated now because okay. you can say oh you can even like you can define what movements make it more like the manual right and oh, okay right and, and that's because then... it's a sophisticated um Visual interpretation software, and it's not just like, "Oh, contact okay. was made here."
0: Okay, but when somebody then does something that is good fencing, in the sense that they're in control of their opponent's weapon and they hit them, mm-hmm. and they do it all with control and safely, yeah. But it's not something that is from a particular manual. I think that should get the point. I don't think that we should be doing sort of. Like
1: no, but well like in like thing. in figure skating, you,
0: can... you have like the technical and the yeah. artistic yeah. score. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's that's appropriate for swords.
1: but you can basically define a point or a win any way you want with how sophisticated visual interpretation software is now. I think okay. where you're getting hung up is that um, the 60s and 70s Olympic fencing software was basically as rudimentary and stupid as it got, right?
0: Um no, it's it's not that. It's it's the I've not yet seen a the ability to control the rule set to be consistently capable of creating good fencing. The only thing that I think does do that is continually changing the rule set.
1: Yeah. And, and also see, but we could. In he there's no also reason we couldn't.
0: Sure. And and also giving prizes for like like technical merit.
1: Yeah, and you absolutely still could do that, right? All I'm saying yeah. with this AI assistance is that we're trying to do everything that a human judge is expected to do and do it better. And there's just <laughs> okay. like, there's, for me, um, there is definitely merit to training fencers to be mentally immune to the randomness and chaos of tournament judging. Sure. But I do not see any inherent value in that chaos itself. Like we do not need to be making judging purposely bad.
0: Oh, I agree, yeah. Right, I mean, that... like
1: judging is an art, a very important part of HEMA training, and it's worth doing well.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think like back when I was doing sport fencing in the 80s, we were trained from the very beginning how to judge and how to preside. So how mm-hmm. to look for the fight. So that the equivalent mm-hmm. of a line judge or a ring, ring yeah. judge the one who basically says who hit who yeah. and the president is the one who says what actually happened and analyzes that information and decides what has just occurred yeah and we had we had these we, we were you know, we practiced doing it and I do that for my students too so you have yeah. a fencing match takes seven people you've got four judges two fencers one president and everyone rotates whenever they they learn how to judge and they learn how to preside and yeah and the thing is it is bad for fencers to have bad judging because yes. it's it, it, basically it creates an unpredictable feedback mechanism
1: and doesn't right? it also encourage worse fencing because sure when you have to say oh i didn't hit you hard enough because the judge didn't see that i better like hit harder next time i gotta be more aggressive i gotta make it really obvious that i killed you that also That's not good. yeah inherently encourages worse fencing and so i just want a more nuanced and more consistent um feedback see, I, th- I, think the,
0: I think the only way to find out what the effect will actually be is to give you the money and let you build yeah i guess we gotta like plan, <laughs> build, see
1: what's in there right
0: <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well thanks so much for joining me today Marie, it's been lovely to meet you
1: thank you so much this has been a blast
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marie. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four e-books and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for Sword People. I'd like to thank the people that make the show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I would have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash theswordguy for behind-the-scenes content, to suggest future guests, and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash theswordguy. Of course, I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to David Biggs, who is a lawyer, a diplomat and historical martial arts instructor with the Tattershall School of Defence. He's known in the SCA as Aaron Harper, where he is a master of defence and a laurel. And yes, we do go into what those things mean. He's also the organiser with two previous guests on the show, Lisa Losito and Monica Gordio of Lord Baltimore's Challenge, one of my favourite historical martial arts events. Make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. And of course, what helps the most is if you tell your friends all about this wonderful show that you love so much. Go on, perjure yourself and go and tell everyone how much they should be listening to The Sword Guy. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.